Hello, what's your point? You know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, Garnett, the important role that you're playing on WPKN in not simply independent journalism, but making sure voices get out. The reality is that as we talk about social media and criticism and hashtags, conversation, like deep dialogue about these issues is really what we're going to need if we're going to ever get to that point of reimagination. So I just wanted to, to thank you. You know, we've got a list for the revolution, um, and that revolution really is going to uh, have to be one that allows us to, to conquer these inequalities and move forward as, as, a, as a nation as a whole, but also as a community united. Okay, thank you so much. I believe dialogue is very important for the continuation and maintenance of a democracy. One should be tolerant of all views different to yours. It is much better to use words to settle differences than with weapons. You see, weapons destroy human beings. When all these differing views are put together, a consensus should be found to move the nation forward together for one common cause. At the end of an argument, we may disagree, but not become disagreeable. Good morning, this is What's Your Point with Garnet Ankle. Today on the show, we pay homage to two great black leaders. The spotlight is on Nelson Mandela and Marcus Garvey. We now shine the spotlight on Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela said... For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. The life of Nelson Mandela is without a doubt a fascinating one. Fewer men in the history of the world have done so much in the name of equality, freedom, and peace. This is a man who transcends all languages. On July 18, 1918, Rohilala Dalibunga Mandela was born, a member of the Madiba clan. His tribal name, Rohilala, means troublemaker. He was later given his English name, Nelson, by a teacher at his school. In 1919, the year after Nelson Mandela was born, his father was dispossessed of his land and money on the orders of a white magistrate. In 1927, Nelson Mandela's father died. The acting chief of the Tembo clan, John Jin Taba Galind Yebo, became his guardian and ensured he received an 
excellent education. Nelson Mandela completed his junior certificate at Clark Berry Boarding Institute and in 1937 he moved to Heald Town and attended a Wesleyan secondary school of some repute where he matriculated. Nelson Mandela began his studies for a Bachelor of Arts degree at the University College of Fort Hare, where he met his lifelong friend, Oliver Tambo. Uh, during that period, University College of Fort Hare was the only residential center of higher learning for black people in South Africa. Fort Hare was considered Africa's equivalent of Oxford or Harvard, drawing scholars from all parts of sub-Saharan Africa. In his first year, Mandela took the required courses, but focused on Roman Dutch law to prepare for a career in civil service as an interpreter or clerk, the best profession a black man could obtain. In his second year, he was elected to the Student Representative Council. For some time, students had been dissatisfied with the food and lack of power held by the Student Representative Council. During this election, a majority of students voted to boycott unless their demands were met. Mandela aligned with the majority of the students and resigned his position. Seeing this as an act of insubordination, the university's Dr. Carr expelled Mandela for the rest of the year, telling him he could come back when he agreed to serve on the Student Representative Council. On his return home, Nelson Mandela's guardian was furious and said if he didn't return to Fort Hare, he would arrange wives for him and his cousin, Justice. They ran away to Johannesburg instead, arriving there in 1941. In Johannesburg, Nelson Mandela experienced the system of apartheid, which forbade the black population to vote, travel without permission, or own land. While in Johannesburg, Nelson Mandela worked at several jobs, including as a security guard at a mine, and then a clerk at a law firm. All this while completing his bachelor's degree via correspondence courses. He then enrolled at the University of Witwatersrand to study law. He became actively involved in the anti-apartheid movement and joined the African National Congress, ANC, sometime between 1942 and 1943. I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, and just like the river I've been running. Within the African National Congress, 
a small group of young Africans banded together, calling themselves the African National Congress Youth League. This group was to transform the ANC into a mass grassroots movement deriving strength from millions of rural peasants and working people who had no voice under the current racist regime. Specifically, the group believed that the ANC's old tactics of polite petitioning were ineffective. In 1949, the ANC officially adopted the Youth League's methods of boycott, strike, civil disobedience, and non-cooperation with policy goals of full citizenship, redistribution of land, trade union rights, and free and compulsory education for all children. Mandela, Mandela, we have seen your light. We shall all unite for God, for truth, for right. Asanya, Amala, it's not over yet. We shall not regret. touch with WPKN Radio. The show is What's Your Point? The spotlight is on Nelson Mandela. We will shine the spotlight on Marcus Garvey later in the show. I am Garnet Anchor. For 20 years, Nelson Mandela directed a campaign of peaceful, non-violent defiance against the South African government and its racist policies, including the 1952 defiance campaign and the 1955 Congress of the People. He founded the law firm Mandela and Tambo, partnering with Oliver Tambo, a brilliant student he had earlier met at Fort Hare. The law firm provided free and low-cost legal counsel to unrepresented black people in South Africa. In 1956, Nelson Mandela and 150 others were arrested and charged with treason for their political advocacy, though they were eventually acquitted. Meanwhile, the African National Congress was being challenged by the Africanists, a new breed of black activists who believed that pacifist method of the ANC was ineffective. By 1959, the African National Congress lost most of its militant support when the Africanists broke away to form the Pan-Africanist Congress. Nelson Mandela's marriage of 13 years with his wife Evelyn 
broke up in 1957. They had three children between them. In 1958, Nelson Mandela married Nomzamo Winnie Madikisela, who later became known as Winnie Mandela, a social worker, and the couple had two children between them. Their marriage ended in separation in April 1992, and they divorced in March 1996. By 1959, the South African racist minority white regime passed new laws extending racial segregation by creating separate homelands for majority black groups in South Africa. History recalls the Sharpeville massacre in 1960 when police killed 69 peaceful protesters and the ANC was banned by the white minority racist regime. Nelson Mandela went into hiding and formed an underground military group with armed resistance. In 1961, Mandela, who was formally committed to non-violent protest, began to believe that armed struggle was the only way to achieve change. Mandela co-founded Umkonto Wesizwe also known as MK, an armed offshoot of the African National Congress dedicated to sabotage and guerrilla war tactics to end apartheid. He orchestrated a three-day national workers' strike in 1961, for which he was arrested in 1962. He was sentenced to five years in prison for the strike, and then brought to trial again in 1963. This time, he and 10 other ANC leaders were sentenced to life imprisonment for political offenses, including sabotage. African nations and uh, two Caribbean nations, namely Cuba and Jamaica, were on the forefront of pressing the South African regime to free Mandela. So it was no coincidence 
or an accident that the first two countries that Mandela visited on his celebratory international tour were Cuba and Jamaica. Jamaican anti-apartheid antagonism peaked in the 1970s under Michael Manley, who was at the time Prime Minister, firmly supported by P.J. Patterson and Dudley Thompson, two members of the Michael Manley government at the time. Manley's was the foremost anti-apartheid voice outside South Africa with major United Nations speeches in Maputo, Mozambique, Kingston, Jamaica, and the United Nations headquarters. In 1978, as one of seven world leaders awarded United Nations gold medal for their anti-apartheid contributions, Manley was chosen to speak on behalf of all awardees. Besides, he was the principal strategist in the isolation of apartheid South Africa, leading to the outlawing of apartheid sports and isolation of South Africa by the Commonwealth and the United Nations. When in December 1975, United States Secretary of State Henry Kissinger warned Manley not to support Cuba's presence in Angola to defend that country against apartheid South Africa's incursion, Manley declined to commit Jamaica to opposing Cuba's defense of Angola or to neutrality, despite hints that non-compliance would jeopardize urgently needed financial aid. Jamaica, in concert with all of Africa, voted at the United Nations in favor of the Cuban presence in Angola, and the proposed United States federal assistance did not materialize. Manley, Patterson, and Thompson also influenced other nations in the Caribbean and elsewhere to endorse Cuba's heroic campaign in Angola. So Michael Manley spoke at the United Nations of them seeing the fight against apartheid in South Africa, Mandela and the guerrilla war tactics of the ANC military wing as armed resistance and not and not terrorist. These people were fighting for equal rights. They were not fighting a legitimate government because the government was not legitimate in South Africa. They were a group of white, racist minority people. You are in touch with WPKN Radio. The show is What's Your Point? The spotlight on Nelson Mandela. And later during the show, we'll spotlight Marcus Garvey. You do stay tuned. I am Garnet Ankle. In 1968, Nelson Mandela's mother died and his eldest son was killed in a car crash and he was not allowed to attend either of the funerals. In 1974, Rhodesia, the African nation now called Zimbabwe, was expelled from the United Nations due to their policy of apartheid. In 1976, over 600 students were killed in protests at Soweto and Sharpville in South Africa. In 1977, Steve Biko, the leader of the protests was killed whilst in police custody. In 1980, the exiled Oliver Tambo launched 
an international campaign for the release of his friend Nelson Mandela. And in that same year, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe and that nation gained its independence. In 1983, the white minority racist government allowed white farmers to rearm and protect themselves from black dissidents. In 1984, the white racist minority government declared that since 1983, black dissidents had murdered 120, mutilated 25, raped 47, and committed 284 robberies. In 1986, sanctions against South Africa tightened costing millions in revenue. And in 1988, amnesty was announced for all dissidents, 122 surrendered. You are listening to WPKN. The show is What's Your Point? The spotlight is currently on Nelson Mandela, the South African freedom fighter who later became president of a democratic South Africa. Later during the show, the spotlight will be on Marcus Garvey. In 1982, Nelson Mandela and other African National Congress leaders were moved to Pulsmore Prison, allegedly to enable contact between them and the South African government. In 1985, South Africa's President P.W. Botha offered Mandela's release in exchange for renouncing armed struggle. The prisoner flatly rejected the offer, with increasing local and international pressure for his release, the government participated in several talks with Mandela over the years, but no deal was made. It wasn't until Botha suffered a stroke and was replaced by Frederick Willem de Klerk that Mandela's release was announced in February 1990. The Klerk unbanned the ANC, removed restrictions on political groups and suspended executions. Upon his release on February 11, 1990, Nelson Mandela immediately urged foreign powers not to reduce their pressure on South African government for constitutional reform. While he stated his commitment to work toward peace, he declared that the African National Congress's armed struggle would continue until the black majority received the right to vote. Mandela was elected president of the African National Congress in 1991, with lifelong friend and colleague Oliver Tambo serving as national chairperson. Mandela continued to negotiate with President F.W. de Klerk toward the country's first multiracial elections. White South Africans were willing to share power, but many black South Africans wanted a complete transfer of power. The negotiations were often strained and news of violent eruptions, including the assassination of ANC leader Chris Arney, continued throughout the country. Mandela was 
to keep a delicate balance of political pressure and intense negotiations amid the demonstrations and armed resistance. Mind you shear out with shear Mandela beware over 400 years Them no care Who going pay for all the black blood shed? Who going pay for sweat of children dead? Who going say we not bargain for freedom? Freedom now our face the gun Mandela beware Mind you shear out with shear Mandela beware over 400 years Them no care Asanya arise, no more apartheid lie. Asanya arise, black babies cry. Negotiating for what truly belong to you could never be a noble thing to do. Sitting and talking while blacks die every day. Going round and round trying a peaceful way. Mandela beware, mind your cheer out with cheer. Mandela beware, over 400 years, they not here. Negotiations prevailed, however. And on April 27, 1984, South Africa held its first democratic elections. At age 77, Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as the country's first black president on May 10, 1994, with F.W. de Klerk as his first deputy. In 1993, Mandela shared the Nobel Peace Prize for Peace with the clerk for their work towards dismantling apartheid. And in 1995, he was awarded the Order of Merit. In 1994, Mandela published his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, much of which he had secretly written while in prison. From 1994 until 1999, Mandela worked to bring about the transition from minority rule and apartheid to black majority rule. He used the nation's enthusiasm for sports as a pivot point to promote reconciliation between whites and blacks, encouraging black South Africans to support the once hated South African national rugby team. In 1995, South Africa came on the world's stage by hosting the Rugby World Cup, which brought further recognition and prestige to the young republic. During his presidency, Mandela also worked to protect South Africa's economy from collapse and officially launched South Africa's government. Through his reconstruction and development plan, he had the government funding the creation of jobs, housing, and basic health care. In 1996, he signed into law the new South African constitution which established a strong central government based on majority rule and guaranteed rights of minority and freedom of expression. Nelson Mandela retired from active politics at the 1999 general election but maintained a busy schedule, raising money for his Mandela Foundation to build schools and clinics in South Africa's rural heartland and serving as a mediator in the Burundi Civil War. While he was alive, every year on July 18, school children gathered on Nelson Mandela's doorstep to sing him happy birthday. 
and every year Mandela lights up with his famous gentle smile and hugs each child, thanking him or her for the song. Nelson Mandela, one of the great black revolutionary leaders in the history of human existence. We now turn the focus on Marcus Garvey. Mosiah Garvey was born August 17, 1887 in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica. This charismatic black leader organized the first important American black nationalist movement between 1919 and 1926 in New York City's Harlem in the United States. Largely self-taught, Garvey attended school in Jamaica until he was 14 years old. After traveling in Central America and living in London from 1912 to 1914, he returned to Jamaica, where, with a group of friends, he founded, on August 1, 1914, the Universal Negro Improvement Conservation Association and African Communities League, usually called the Universal Nigger Improvement Association, UNIA, which sought, among other things, to build in Africa a black governed nation. As the saying goes, a good man is never honored in his own country. Failing to attract a following in Jamaica, Garvey went to the United States in 1916 and soon established branches of the UNIA in Harlem and the other principal ghettos of the North. By 1919, the rising Black Moses claimed a following of about 2 million people, though the exact number of association members 
was never clear. From the platform of the association's Liberty Hall in Harlem, New York, he spoke of a new Negro, proud of being black. His newspaper, Negro World, told of the exploits of heroes of the race and of the splendors of African culture. He taught that blacks would be respected only when they were economically strong and he preached an independent black economy within the framework of white capitalism. To forward these ends, he established the Negro Factories Corporation and the Black Star Line in 1919, as well as a chain of restaurants and grocery stores, laundries, a hotel, and a printing press. Marcus Garvey reached the height of his power in 1920 when he presided at an international convention in Liberty Hall with delegates present from 25 countries. The affair was climaxed by a parade of 50,000 people through the streets of Harlem led by Garvey in flamboyant array. Garvey's doctrine of racial purity and separatism, he even approved of the white racist Ku Klux Klan because it sought to separate the races, brought him bitter enemies among established black leaders, including labor leader A. Philip Randolph and W.E.B. Du Bois, head of the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Garvey, one of the most influential 20th century black nationalist and pan-Africanist leaders, was influenced by Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery. Garvey began his support industrial education economic separatism and social segregation in strategies that would enable the ascent of the black race. Garvey adopted Booker T. Washington's inspirational phrase, Up, you mighty race, you can conquer what you will. Garvey's Negro World newspaper spread his message across the United States to an increasingly receptive black American community. His major audience included the thousands of Southern blacks who were then migrating from the shadow of slavery and the plantation to the urban north. 
black veterans of World War I were another Garvey audience. Most of them had experienced both French equality and United States military bigotry and returned home as militant race men. They were attracted by Garvey's call. The UNIA grew larger still following the race riots in the red summer of 1919. Garveyism resonated with the rapidly urbanizing black community and spread beyond the United States to the Caribbean, Latin America and Africa regardless of your locale. Garvey's UNIA promised black economic uplift via self-reliance, political equality via self-determination and the liberation of Africa from European colonialism via a black army marching under the red, black and green flag of black manhood. Africa's redemption, according to UNIA supporters, was foretold in the Messianic Biblical Psalm 63, verse 31. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. However, it was Garvey's ability to convey in his vivid and powerful speeches the distinct possibility of achieving these goals that led the UNIA to become an organization of millions. When Garvey bellowed, I am the equal of any white man and I want you to feel the same way. He inspired the faithful and attracted the curious. Addressing the gender question, Garvey wrote, Black queen of beauty, though has given color to the world. Black men worship at thy virginal shrine for purest love. Garvey even created a new black faith by ordaining Reverend George Alexander Maguire as chaplain general of the African Orthodox Church. Maguire's sermons urged Garveyites to erase the white gods from your hearts. Remember Marcus, the Messiah Gavi. Him the dead, that man the dead, that man the dead. The man a trader still. That man a trader still. That man a trader still. Watching his prophecy fulfilled.
at the 1920 UNIA International Convention at Madison Square Garden, New York City, with 25,000 delegates and observers in attendance, Garvey issued the Declaration of Rights of the Negro Peoples of the World. The convention also produced the Universal Ethiopian Anthem, The Negro World, the official newspaper of the UNIA, also spread the organization's philosophy globally with a circulation of over 200,000 and published in three languages, Spanish and French as well as English. The Negro World was read on four continents. Garvey's most ambitious effort was the establishment of the Black Star Steamship Line. Garvey hoped that this joint stock corporation would develop lucrative commercial networks between the United States, the Caribbean, and the continent of Africa. He also hoped that his three ships would help in the return of millions of blacks in the diaspora to Mother Africa. However, because of heavy debt and mismanagement, the steamship went bankrupt and Garvey in January 1922 was arrested and charged with using the United States mail to defraud stock investors. Ultimately, Garvey garnered the wrath of black American leaders when he met with the Ku Klux Klan leader Edward Young Clark in Richmond, Virginia in June 1922. Garvey naively believed the two organizations could work together since both supported the goal of racial purity. Clark, in fact, did promise some financial assistance to the UNIA. After hearing of this meeting, however, the NAACP leader W.E.B. Du Bois called Garvey the greatest enemy of the Negro race. The Urban League called Garvey a swindler, and Black Union leader A. Philip Randolph said Garvey and Garveyism should be purged from American soil. Various civil rights organizations now mounted a coordinated Garvey Must Go campaign. The Justice Department, seeking to discredit Garvey because it felt he represented a threat to the colonial interest and menaced racial peace in the United States, hired its first black agent, James Wormley Jones, to infiltrate the UNIA. Garvey was convicted of mail fraud in 1923 and sentenced to five years in federal prison, in part because of a letter-writing campaign orchestrated by Garvey's second wife, Amy Jakes Garvey, President Calvin Coolidge commuted his sentence in 1927 in exchange for UNIA president accepting deportation.
you are in touch with WPKN Radio. The show is What's Your Point? The focus is currently on Marcus Garvey. I am Garnet Enkel. Marcus Mosiah Garvey is considered a major Pan-Africanist. During his academic studies in the United States, Kwame Nkrumah read the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. He came after Marcus Garvey had uh, departed the United States. The book served as an inspiration to Kwame Nkrumah. He returned to his native, then called Gold Coast in Africa, to agitate for independence from Britain. Uh, when Nkuma was studying in the United States, he joined the UNIA. He never met Marcus Garvey. As a result of the independence of Ghana on March 6, 1957, later in the 1960s became what was called or is called the independence explosion where sub-Saharan African nations gain their independence in droves from uh, colonial rule, European colonial powers. So Kwame Nkrumah was inspired by Garvey and the sub-Saharan African nations were inspired by Nkrumah and the independence of Ghana. It became Ghana on Independence Day. Previously, the nation was called Gold Coast. The star in the Ghanaian flag is as, is as a result of Nkrumah's thoughts of the Black Star Line shipping company of Marcus Garvey. The colors of the flag, the red, gold, and green colors of the flag, also is significant to the colors of the UNIA. Nkrumah became the first prime minister and later the first president of Ghana. Garvey passed away on June 10, 1940, in London, England. His remains were later exhumed and uh, returned to Jamaica, where they are now buried at the National Heroes Park in Kingston, Jamaica. And in 1964, Marcus Garvey was named Jamaica's first national hero. Many songs have been sung of Garvey. Many books have been written of the great man. For a very long time, American politicians have been asking for exonerations and pardons for Marcus Garvey. And as Americans in February celebrates Black History Month, Caribbean American Democratic Congresswoman Yvette Clark last February introduced a resolution to the United States House of Representatives calling for the exoneration of Jamaica's first national hero and human rights activist Marcus Messiah Garvey. Clark, the daughter of Jamaican immigrants who represents the largely 
Caribbean 9th Congressional District in Brooklyn, New York, highlighted Garvey's accomplishment, identifying him as a champion for the liberation of people of African descent. The resolution HRES 148 hails Garvey as a human rights activist and seeks to preserve his legacy by exonerating him of unfounded charges brought against him by the United States government. The resolution also called to newly elected United States President Joe Biden to exonerate Garvey. Garvey is an iconic figure and champion for the liberation of people of African descent worldwide, Clark said. As an inspirational teacher, he became the critical link in the fight for black freedom and justice due to his vast accomplishments as an advocate for human rights. She said she called on the president to exonerate Mr. Garvey on the grounds that the case against him was politically motivated, unsubstantiated, and unjust. Thank you so much for listening. Today, the focus was on Nelson Mandela and Marcus Garvey. I am Garnet Ankle.